The serialised adventures of superheroes, especially those that have enjoyed an ongoing narrative for decades, soon begin to take on a life all of their own. Characters like Batman and Spider-Man evolve over the years to outlive and outgrow any one creator, and any one ideal version of that hero. Mix that with the over-exaggerated extreme feats that these characters undertake every issue, and the superhero narrative takes on a status which can only be described as modern mythology. This, in turn, lends the whole medium a certain mythic quality that can be indulged or subverted in order to tell effective stories of both gods and man. My name's Matt Loon, and today on the show I'm joined by Tiffany Babb and Ram V to discuss two very different comics, one that takes the idea of superheroes as mythology literally, and one that focuses in on the very human flaws of hubris and greed. This is That's the Issue. I'm Ram, better known as Ram V for my books. Um, I did started off doing a self-published book called Black Mumba in 2016. Since then, I've done parody so at Image, The Savage Shores, uh, Net Vault, a couple of Action Lab books, and more recently, I've written for uh, Batman, Catwoman, Justice League Dark at DC. Uh, just smaller projects, but uh, kind of putting myself out there with a lot of different characters. Um, hi, I'm Tiffany, and I'm a comics critic, and I am also currently working on some comic projects myself, um, just figuring some things out. Welcome to the show both. Welcome to uh, That's the Issue. It's lovely to talk to you both. Uh, Tiffany, I'll start with you. I um, wanted to get you on the show because um, I've been listening, I've been reading a lot of your work in Panel by Panel, the magazine that Hass uh, puts out. Um, and I've loved your um, like the, criti- the critique that you've put in into um, like into that magazine and the work you put into um, in your articles and everything as well. Um, what um, what drew you to, to comics and specifically to kind of comics criticism? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, but I found comics or comic books in university. Actually, I'd read comic strips and stuff as a kid, like Calvin and Hobbes and Marmaduke. Um, but I think I was a sophomore in college when I first found like my first serialized comic book. And I was already kind of really, I was in um, comparative literature. So I was studying literary theory. And once I found comics, I was like, well, this is kind of what I want to explore. It's such an interesting, um, and especially American comics, um, and or I guess Western comics in general, because there isn't really one kind of visual language that we use. It's kind of reinvented each time someone picks up a pen. So it's just really really rich ground to study Mm. do you find that that's um that's a fascinating thing to to study over over time so like historical comic books compared to to modern comic books like how how we've kind of how the mediums changed and adapted yeah absolutely um i mean if you go back and you look at old old superhero comics or even the first comic books which are kind of funny animal comic strips from newspapers um put into like little bound books the kind of, and not necessarily like sophisticated, not necessarily that comics are more sophisticated now, but there are a lot of shortcuts you can take when someone, when a medium's already created. Hmm. Um, like there's certain things when back in the 20s and 30s, things like panels were a little slower and the visual gags were like very, very clearly done. But now we kind of, because most people who read comics have already read 100 comics, you can just kind of take that shortcut. Yeah. Yeah, and do you feel like superhero comics are like the the language that they use is vastly different to um, to kind of more independent stuff or, or comics that aren't based around superheroes? I think so. I mean, superhero comics are weird in the fact that like they were for a hot minute in American history um, popular culture. Like everyone was reading superhero comics, and then mm. all of a sudden now, I mean, I think the biggest books sell a hundred thousand copies like they used to cancel books that sold that many um so we went from being a mass medium and having like and like mass mediums demand a different kind of content than like a medium that is specifically catering towards a smaller audience um so i think especially recently superhero comics have kind of been able to break out of their history a little and kind of 
mold a little more towards the smaller audience that it actually kind of reaches now. Yeah, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because I, I, I find that as like, um, you know, I say casual reader, but I am, you know, I'm running a podcast about them. So I'm not exactly that casual. But like, as, as someone who kind of, you know, I, I don't have the, the kind of the literary background to, to study them, even I noticed that a lot of the, um, a lot of the smaller books or the, the books that tend to be a bit more on the fringe tend to be the ones that are experimenting more. Whereas I think books like Batman and Spider-Man tend to, um, tend to stick to certain kind of formula. Um, but I, I think it's, it's interesting now that like the, the superhero, the superhero genre really is, is kind of starting to, um, take on more independent thought with that kind of thing and, and take on comics that are breaking the mold a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's something to be said about kind of what you're reading for. Like, I, I love to read like kind of the independent breaking the format stuff. There's also mm. a lot of kind of richness in what popular culture is. Like, it's it's very easy to be like, okay, here's like Batman 800. It's the same Batman story. And a lot of times it's true. But like that kind of stuff, even from a, I guess, less of a, literary criticism level and more of a like historian level that tells us a lot about who we are as a culture and what these specific publishing companies think that people want to read. I, mean, I also think it's a matter of um, comics kind of being at least superhero comics for, for a while, at least being a victim of their own success. Um, if you remember most of the sort of really innovative runs that we sort of recollect now came about at a time where comics weren't very successful. They were, they were a little bit desperate kind of 80s, early 80s, late 80s, where um, essentially creators who weren't really established in comics were brought in and they were told, yeah, you can do whatever you want with these characters. Um, and you got the, the really interesting, bizarre runs that you did from, from a lot of these creators. And then they became very successful. Um, and the more successful a thing becomes, the more, the less publishers want to take a risk with them because they're now they're now a, a prime property, if you will. So, um, I think I think these things come and go in cycles. Uh, it will come to a point where publishers will want to start taking risks again, um, and you will see you'll see a new group of creators come in who have something different, something more interesting to say. Um, and we'll now have the ability to say it because, again, the character needs to be to be reinvented for a new generation, for a new reader, if you will. Yeah, and I think like even these this new crop of young creators, they don't necessarily have to come in through what we consider like the main publishers. Um, yeah. I mean, everyone was a small fish once. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. the example of that. Um, I came in out of nowhere. I published my first comic in 2016. So... I should be nowhere near the big two publishers in terms of how much experience do you have? I mean, I find that's that's kind of coming a bit more true as well now, though. I think I think um, there I do find that you know the more popular, the more you know um, the more money that the, the you know the big two tend to make, or the more time they get into a position where they are uh, comfortable with the with the sales that they're making. You do find then that they're more likely to take chances on smaller uh, pitches, like smaller books or even less um, experienced creators. Um, and that can then lead to the, you know, the creative boom that you, you're both mentioning, this idea of just a reinvention of the characters or a, a reimagining of, of the structure of these of these stories. Um, and that, so it ends up kind of being... Bit of a, a bit of a seesaw effect, really. You know, one ends up leading to the other, really. In in that sense, I mean, I would I would agree partially. But I would say that it's it's a it's a two way street. Um, I don't think the kind of creators that that I grew up reading could walk back into comics and write a book and and be as successful as they were because they're writing to a different mm -hmm. audience now um, and. I was having this discussion with, with another writer and I said, once you hit kind of an age and, and if you, if you haven't significantly reinvented your point of view in the past 10 years, you should just stop because you're, you're kind of propounding a view that is 
that is already generationally past for 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 people who are reading now. Um, and and part of, I mean, I want to mention Warren Ellis as part of this is the reason that guy stays relevant year after year is because he constantly is reinventing his point of view, what he wants to say, what he wants to talk about. Um, and so I think that is very important as well from a creator's perspective. Um, uh, I, I would be aware of just saying it's a publisher's choice as to what creators they want to take a risk on. Uh, I would say it's a confluence of that and creators kind of educating themselves to to write and talk about things that matter to people now. Right. And I think there's some, especially with um, a, a medium and like now talking about mainstream, something that comes out like month after month, we as writers, we're responding to like the current moment and we're speaking to the current moment. And sometimes that whatever we make can kind of last longer than what we intended it to. But like, if you're writing the same thing that you wrote five years ago, like the world has changed already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you've changed as well, I imagine, like as a as a creator. You know, you Hopefully. can't. Yeah, yeah. You hope anyway. Yeah, that you kind of yeah, exactly. move to a place where you you know because you do you do find that people they they start in independent work and creator owned and then they move into the big two, but then eventually a lot of people from the big two then move back into creator owned because they you know for for various reasons really, but a lot of the time it's to you know to to reinvigorate themselves you know re, re you know re-energize their their creative process um but there, there's something to be said about superhero comics as a kind of i don't think there's any other um there's any other storytelling medium really that that is able to to outlive the not outlive because i think you know a lot of a lot of um a lot of these kind of fictional characters outlive their creators, but um, you know, creators they they move up and they move down and they 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 ebb and flow. But then these characters continue, and they can they continue to to be relevant, despite the fact that it is you know in theory meant to be one long ongoing narrative. Yeah, you would you you would say that, but then when you start talking about continuity, you can see people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, but I, I think the cool thing about um, these characters, and I'm actually doing some writing for a, a bigger panel by panel project in the future about um, kind of seriality. But there's something about a serial character, um, like they're, I, they're obviously really iconic. Um, characters from novels, but then there are your Sherlock Holmeses and your James Bonds and your Zoros. Um, something about the fact that the character can live on past the immediate story um, gives these characters kind of a different kind of life and they feel more like friends. It's the same thing as um, when we talk about television versus film um, and how people are more attached to these TV characters because mm. I guess less now because it's streaming, but they come into your apartment or your house. Um, once a week for years um and so it feels like you know them they more. become a ritual exactly and i suppose it's a lot um that kind of um bonding with these characters does superheroes lend themselves to that as well because there are you know they they're based they they're, they're based on kind of mythology and fiction and and these kind of relatable um characters that everyone they're extreme human beings yeah yeah they're um they're they're everything you you know you you want to be kind of thing i suppose not that we're all sat here thinking i wish i was spider-man but um not all of us anyway but no i i don't i don't think they're i, I would go maybe one step deeper and say i don't think they're necessarily what you want to be but i think they go through what you um relate to and what you wish you could go through without all the hurt and pain hmm. except they take the hurt and pain and they, they they maximize it because they're extreme so you know spider-man's breakup is not just a guy splitting with a girl but it has the fate of new york uh you know uh, kind of hanging in the balance hmm. while his relationship plays out um and so i think superhero comics are interesting in that they take very human struggles and they magnify them. They they they, they turn them into these um, into into these dramas that have epic consequences. Um, and so, everyone's desire is to see themselves kind of as the protagonist of their own story, right? Mm -hmm. So, I think I think they're very successful in doing that. 
in making the reader feel like they're the protagonist of their own lives. Right. And adding on to that, I think they, they magnify kind of like what we think are really high stakes, like our personal emotional stakes. The breakup between Spider-Man and his girlfriend feels like the world is about to end. Yeah. But in these stories, like we actually see like the physical, visual, like ginormous universal stakes. And that is, it speaks to us. Yeah. And I, what I noticed on your uh, website, Tiffany, earlier is um, is the you mentioned that you're researching the constraints of serial storytelling, um, and obviously you just mentioned that you're you're working on something for panel by panel as well. So I don't want to uh, I don't want to bite into that too much. But at um, but at the same time, what are some of the constraints that you found about about superhero comics specifically? So the thing about superhero comics is that they're character centric, um, and we talked a little earlier about kind of what the superhero represents but it's also the fact that like stories that have a beginning middle and end function very differently than stories that don't really have an ending and their beginning like began way before like as much as we all read superhero comics if you do how many people have actually read the first issue that these characters appeared in some people but not all but we still understand the story we can still go on mm. so like we're dipping in through the middle and then so it's it's all about the middle and the end um and so the interesting thing about superhero comics is that because the stories are so character centric we have to have development without changing the characters so much that the character is no longer recognizable um and that lends itself to a very different kind of storytelling and ram like as someone you know you've you've started with your own creator and projects you've got uh, paradiso and you've got um you've got black mumba and you've got graffiti's war um and you know and, and these savage shores that's uh, that's coming out at the moment mm -hmm. you're you're also moving into um superhero fiction as well is this something that has um affected you as a writer like moving into this um shared space as opposed to your own creator owned uh, universes um i mean I, th I guess you make different choices uh and and it it demands that you do different things uh when it comes to developing a story um there's there's a lot of constraints as to who you can use what you can do with a character and what you can't um, sometimes you kind of find, have to find ways of working around that by being clever with the way you use your characters. But, um, I mean, fundamentally I'm still telling the kind of stories that I'd want to tell, um, because I figure if DC are asking me to write more stories for them, they, they want the kind of stories that I would write. They don't want me to come in and write something that they already have, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I mean, part of it is, yes, you have to develop different skills and, and flex different muscles. But the other part is also you have to kind of stay true to the kind of work that you do. And and I I wouldn't presume to say that I've discovered exactly what I do, but I, I definitely think that I have a distinct voice uh, given, given the kind of work that I've done so far. Hmm. And I think that kind of touches on something that you were mentioning as well, Tiffany, this idea of um, superheroes can't really have a, they have a beginning, but we're more focused on the, the middle and the end. What you find with, uh, what I find with um, superheroes is that create, creators will come on and they will, they will have their own arcs that they need to tell. And so you'll find that they'll, they'll have like a, you know, they'll, they'll start their version of this character and then they'll, uh, and then they'll have like a, a an end to it, even if it is just they walk off into the sunset. But knowing full well that with superhero comics, you can't ever really end them. Even even creators that come on to tell like the death of Wolverine, for example, knows that that will be potentially undone at some point in the future. So it is difficult to to get that um, to get that sense of closure. But then that's that's sort of what creators are, are trying to do with their own versions of these characters in a way. Right. It's a it's a balancing act um, of kind of you have to be satisfying or also readers frustrated, um, but you also have to kind of leave it open for the future. Um, I, and I would also say, if, you know, from a, from a creator's perspective um, is you have to be a little brave uh, in that. I can't approach writing a story for Batman and say, this is what Batman is as a, as a three-dimensional, solid, unchanging object, mm. because then that's a boring story to write. Then I might as well be writing someone's you know, biography, if you will. No, the character itself is mutable and I can change him. But I think what happens is 
so many times, you know, uh, creators come into these and you, you kind of have to run a balancing act between satisfying expectations of, of what that character is and still finding a way to sort of leave your imprint on that character and, and use that character to kind of tell the stories that you would tell. Um, and it's often very easy, especially if you have already read this character and you and you have enjoyed the stories and you're kind of a fan as well. It's very easy to, to forget that, no, I can change this character because I'm writing that character now. Hmm. Um, and you have to be a, a little brave, perhaps a little egotistical, but I think the best stories that we remember are come from, you know, writers and creators who kind of took a character and did something unique and new with it. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Ram, you're like what you're speaking to is like there are really it's really two characters. It's the ideal character that combines everything we know about whatever and all of the past um, comics that have like featured this character and then the character within the scope of your story and what you're trying to do. And those are like yeah. two distinct things. They, they overlap at times, but they like your your character in this. Yeah, there's, there's a there's a perception of the character as developed over time by someone who's read everything. And then there's the character that is being written onto the page at that point in time. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And it, it, this is, again, it's unique really to, to superheroes in, in many ways because, you know, Tiffany, you were talking about other characters like Zorro and Bond and, uh, and Sherlock Holmes, but even they're limited by you know, what what we would consider to be canonical stories, if you will. Um, whereas with superheroes, everything that is, is on the page has has happened in one form or another to these characters and to us, more importantly, as readers. And so everyone will have their own vision. And so to be able to, not, not vision the robot, um, <laughs> everyone will have their own kind of idea of who that character is. And it it gets to the point now, 70, 80 years after some of these characters were created, that you're never, as a writer, as a as an artist, you're never going to be able to to satisfy every single reader with with your ideas. And you shouldn't be. I mean, that would be absurd for any writer or artist to go, I want to satisfy absolutely everyone who reads yeah. this. Yeah. Well, it goes back to your idea of being brave, isn't it? You know, the, the some of the the best stories and some of the stories that people now say, "Oh my God, this that was you know seminal work for for that character." You know, they they started in in some kind of controversy. You know, like uh, yeah. like Winter Soldier, for example. You know, everyone loves that character now, and everyone loves that you know the 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 direction that that brought Captain America as a character and, and as a as a as a story. But the idea of bringing Bucky back to life was you know, was one of those cardinal rules that you just don't break. You know, you don't bring Uncle Ben back. You don't bring Bucky back. Um, and yeah, it was done in a way, you know. Yeah, and the same thing with, um, sorry, uh, the same thing with Jason Todd, um, who also was brought back pretty much within the same mm. year yeah. as Bucky Barnes. And the interesting thing, I've actually done a lot of writing about Bucky and Jason and their revivals mm. and how, like we used to always say, you know, you, you don't bring Uncle Ben back, you don't bring Jason back, and you don't bring Bucky back because... Um, those deaths are supposed to be so central to the way that um, the characters are. Like Batman wasn't the Batman we know until after Jason died. And the same thing with Captain mm. America. Uh, Bucky's death was so instrumental in bringing Captain America into like the modern century. But there comes a point where the characters are already, the new versions of the characters are already cemented enough that you can change their past and they're still who they are. Um, and I find that very interesting. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, I mean, the, even these markers change with time. Um, I mean, it's funny we're talking about Jason Todd now, um, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you'd be talking about, you know, Thomas and Martha Wayne uh, in, the, in that respect. Um, and, and that scene of, you know, the pearls getting scattered on the alley floor. God, how many times have we seen that, right? So, mm. uh, yeah, each of these characters have, have things that define them, but they're only definitive to that generation of reader. Um, I mean, if you if you've got someone who picked up a Batman book in the past five years, they haven't seen the 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 effect uh, or the the effect of those origin murders on Bruce as a character. They have seen very other a lot of other things have have that effect on him, but what they're seeing now is is far far developed beyond that. Mm. If you see what I mean. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've um, you've got a number of uh, books coming out at the moment, um, Ram. You've got These Savage Shores, which is um, on its yep. uh, fifth issue, is due out. Um, due out. There is not a next month. Is it this month? Next month? Uh, it should be next yeah. month. Yeah, I mean, we've we've kind of had so they're they're all uh, oversized issues. We've not done a single one under twenty eight pages. Yeah, I no. don't think. Um, and so as we get close to the end and the issues have gotten slightly bigger, um, I think I've been very punishing on, on people to finish on time. So, um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, thank you. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's worth the extra, the extra care that's been put into it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, it would be, it would be very silly of us to not take the time now, um, because this is the last issue. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And how have you found the reaction to it? Because I think uh, it's been absolutely glowing from what I can see. Yeah, no, I mean, um, the response to it has been very, very sort of heartwarming, um, especially also because it's uh, such a personally important story, uh, given where I'm from and the subject matter and, and what I'm trying to do with a metaphor. So um, it's nice to see a narrative that, I don't think I've seen anywhere else uh, in, in comics, let alone, I mean, in books even, uh, done in quite the same way. It's nice to see that kind of get appreciation from people who don't really have a personal context to it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It gives me joy to think that I can transmit what is essentially a very personal experience to someone through a story uh, and still have them sort of emotionally resonate with what I'm trying to say. Um, hmm. so so that's been really nice um apart from that all the reviews and all the twitter attention and all the that that's great too <laughs> <laughs> and you've got um you've got a story in the justice league dark annual that's your next um next dc uh, work that's coming up yeah the whole thing is is um scripted by me co-plotted by me and uh, james tynan who hmm. was kind enough to actually bring me on board, having read The Savage Shores. So that ah. was quite interesting. Yeah, he, he'd read The Savage Shores and he went, look, I've got this thing that I think you'd be good for. So what would you do um, with this scenario? And then we talked about it and he loved what I came up with. And uh, we, we kind of created the plot and then I went away and scripted the thing. Oh, um, brilliant. It's uh, essentially focuses on Swamp Thing, uh, even though it, it is uh, a Justice League Dark Annual, it kind of narrows the focus down to Swamp Thing and, and his uh, part in the larger scheme of events that James has been writing. Um, and it gave me the kind of the opportunity to go back and do what I feel is a, is a contemporary, but definitely a much more Swamp Thing, quote unquote Swamp Thing story. <laughs> uh, than, than, than a lot of what we've seen so awesome and that's out um, the end of the month is that at the end yeah, of July that's July 28th that's July 31st um, July 31st and that is on FOC July 8th so if you want to have a copy definitely go tell your retailer perfect yeah plug. <laughs> <laughs> no that's what you're here for yeah, yeah. i want to want to i want to help you uh, get you get the word out about your work um and you tiffany you mentioned you're uh, working on some comics at the moment is there anything you can tell us about that not yet um, <laughs> no just uh, <laughs> other stuff that's coming out um we have mm. a new panel by panel issue number 24 which is on the wicked and the divine which is very exciting um and mm. actually my piece is a personal essay which is pretty different for me um yeah and then I'm part of the, on Shelf Dust, there's a series of articles called Women Watch the Watchmen, which is very fun. Mm. So it's, I think, all women and non-binary people. And each of us are taking one of the issues. So I have issue 11, which should be coming up in a couple weeks. And I'm talking yeah. about the color white as, represent, uh, as representation of destruction. And then um, I also have a recurring feature on the MNT. And my second article should be coming out soon, and it's on fearless defenders and uh, the concept of teamwork in comics. 
Those they all sound amazing. I, I've loved the um, Women Watch the Watchmen series. That's I, I feel as though I've kind of it's it's reinvigorated my enjoyment of Watchmen is reading it through these articles because you there's only so many you know times you can hear someone say Watchmen is the greatest comic of all time without going <laughs> <Yeah>. okay then <laughs> you know whereas hearing you know being able to find fresh takes on a book that has had such so much attention as that has um has been really refreshing to see so it's been really interesting to to read those articles yeah and there's something about the fact that everyone has one issue um and everyone's coming at it from like so many different points Mm. of view that it it's like it feels fresh there are just so many different perspectives and there are so many different i think we forget often that there are so many different ways to read a comic yeah um and yeah, I'm, I've been really impressed with other pieces so far. So hopefully mine won't disappoint. <laughs> well, I'm sure it won't. I'm absolutely sure it won't. Um, but the reason I've got you both here as well is to talk about you and your um, love of comics and you as comics fans and readers um, through the um, through the guise of, of an issue or a series that, um, that you've bought with you. Um, so, uh, Ram, I'll start with you. What is the, um, what is the comic that you've bought with you uh, to talk about today? Uh, so, the the comic that I have to talk about today is the score, which is a Parker graphic novel, uh, which is Darwin Cook's adaptation of the uh, Richard Stark original, or I should say, uh, David Westlake original, um, and it is it is a story that has uh, I mean it is a character that has been adapted in in, in a variety of different ways. Um, into into film, into radio, into uh, it, it was originally created as a novel, uh, and then also Darwin's amazing adaptation into into his graphic novel series. Um, and the reason I kind of I'm looking at this now um, is um, I'm going to give you a little bit of historic historical context um, before uh, I self published uh, Black Mumba. I had started working part time uh, with a with a digital comics publisher, um, who had the rights to sort of digitally publish a lot of IDW's uh, catalog, and uh, so I read that while I was putting together a PDF for digital publication, uh, and I had no idea uh, because of my very unorthodox comics background. I had no idea who Darwin Cook was. Um, I had never seen his work before, um, and here's this thing that I just started reading as a as a thing while I was putting together the PDF, and it drew me in, um, and I immediately recognized that this was you know the work of a master, um, and then I was super interested in in finding out that he'd taken prose and adapted it to graphic novels, which is, I mean, there are a fair few examples of it, but I think. Darwin's take uh, and his graphic novels are, are really a fantastic uh, example of how much you can do with adapting something that is just prose um, because uh, he, he does a lot of really interesting things with it. Um, you would, you would, the reason a lot of prose is successful is because it encourages you uh, to, to, to kind of participate in visualizing the story uh, or in making it real. Uh, and the moment you take that, put it into a graphic novel, you're kind of doing a lot of the work for the reader in that you're giving them a visual to look at. Um, and, and that can often mean that telling that same story is much more challenging. Um, but it's Darwin's kind of cartooning and almost semi-minimalist cartooning that he does and his sort of limited color tones that leave so much space for you as a reader to still kind of fill his visuals with your own take and your own personality uh, in reading um, a lot of what he's taken from from David Westlake. Um, and it's amazing that he's able to do that. Um, and so it was really one of those things where, you know, I'd looked at the art and I'd gone, and this is, this is cartooning at its, at its absolute peak because he's able to transmit so much subtext through such subtle work in the art um, that if it had been given to less deft hands, um, you could almost see how it might be too much on the page. Um, And then he does interesting things with 
you know, part of the prose comes in as just prose without, you know, captions or bubbles. It's just written into the art. So you read it as prose, um, as part of the art. And then right next to it, you have people talking the, uh, where the words are in dialogue balloons. And, uh, and that has an effect on how you perceive the two things, the narration and the dialogue. And um, he, he is masterful with the pacing. It's, it's a fairly dense book, even amongst the other Parker books, uh, he, where he tends to kind of stick to widescreen storytelling. The score in, in particular um, has pages with, you know, 9, 10, 11 panels at times. Um, and despite it being that dense, he's able to bring in a sense of that kind of classic Hollywood noir pacing to it, um, mm. which I find very interesting because the biggest challenge for me uh, as someone who was coming into comics uh, off of doing prose was figuring out just how the hell pacing worked because you have to work backwards, right? You can't really tell if you've been successful at pacing something until the art is finished and until the lettering is done and then you read it and go, yeah, that works. So you have to do it a few times and you have to make mistakes a few times until you can look at the final page and go, okay, I can work my, my way backward from here now. Um, and reading something like Parker and looking at how he paces the art and the text is is in kind of invaluable if you're trying to learn hmm. pacing yeah i couldn't have said it better myself i think the 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 thing that struck me the most when i first read it was this was this idea of this is such a perfect example of um of a of, a, of an artist creating a story uh from something some a completely different medium you know the the experience of reading the book um you know as someone who's not read the book but i can imagine as, as reading the book would be such a different experience to 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 reading this uh, the way that darwin's presented it yeah. but not just in the sense that this is a comic and that's uh that's prose it's more in the sense of the the decisions he's made when it comes to storytelling when it comes to structure and pacing and what he's chosen to to leave in what he's chosen to put as prose on the page what he's decided to to leave up to the art what he decided to to leave to your imagination as well um i think those decisions were what made this book um, such a compelling read for me is this the idea of of, of feeling Darwin Cook as a creator uh, making these decisions as you work your way through the book. Yeah, really, it's it's that thing you you just mentioned, which is hmm. deciding um, what to leave to the art. I think you know every every couple of weeks on Twitter, someone hmm. starts up a discussion where it goes, "Oh no, the artist is most important. The writer is most important." And, and you kind of get tired because all of those discussions, you know, take place at a level where I'm mm. just like, but guys, just look at what you can do together, right? And Darwin's such a great example of that, uh, even though, I mean, we're really talking about one person. But as a writer, there's a lot I can learn from when he chooses to keep a panel silent, what, what he chooses to lead to the art. Um, and... and I can only benefit from from learning that sort of process of making that choice, which I think, frankly, a lot of writers would benefit from uh, knowing how much is enough. And also understanding that you have finite real estate with comics. Uh, and so making choices as to where you can put in narration, where do you put in captions, where do you have first person, where do you have third person, all the choices have been made in Darwin's Parker books, and and they've been made with um, such deftness that it, it's definitely instructive, at least for me. Yeah, and I think there's something specific about this um, story and noir stories in general of not a lot happens. Like it feels like a lot is happening because there's a lot of kind of explanation of what is going to happen. Um, but then you come across, I think it's page 98 and 99, and there's two nine panel grids, and they're all mm. in different locations all at the same time and it's kind of catching the reader up to what is yeah. happening and immediately it's followed by a map of sorts and just kind of that simplicity of recognizing like all the explanation that's happened and then making sure we're all on the same page to see what happens next um that's kind of it's like yeah. it's a stroke of genius really yeah and and i mean essentially darwin's using 
montages there. That 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 would be a montage uh, if you if you looked at it uh, in in live action, if you will. He has set. He's worked so hard to set everything up to that page. Is that when you get to ninety eight and ninety nine, you get this moment of stillness, which is almost like taking a snapshot of was that um, eighteen different places at once. <laughs> when you open to that spread and yeah and that, that, that's great and it's it's a testament to him as well that there's so many spinning plates at that point you know there's so many moving parts to this uh you know this hoist yeah. that these characters are, are, are pulling off and that's the that is the intentional uh, tension of the story is the fact that there's so many pieces that you know at any one point one of these plates could fall and and it inevitably does you know because that's the nature of the story but how he's able to portray that in 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 a in a not just a short space of time because it's not about it's not about brevity it's it's about efficiency and being able to show these different different characters and he's built these characters up and he's um he's shown these different um stories to to their fullest to the point where all you need is to see one panel to see you know to see that for yeah, example yeah. uh, the guy that's in the in the um uh, in the telephone exchange is is actually like making a monkey of mm. himself literally to to win the heart of this girl um and she's there laughing you know and it yeah. could just be two characters you know in love or acting the fool but you know what is at stake by seeing that and you know what what the the depth of the storytelling that's going into that one panel yeah it's incredibly tense um because yeah. it is all yeah. happening at one moment and everything's going fine so far but we know that like the shoe the other shoe's going to drop um, and mm. we're kind of like looking for, I feel like that's kind of part of why we spend so much time on this page, as opposed to a lot of kind of wordless panels you skim through here. We're looking for what can possibly go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, and there's so many different ways in which it can go wrong as well. You know, they are all, there's a lot of red herrings at play and there's a lot of this can go wrong. This can go wrong. But see, like this is a great example of, of why. Darwin's so successful, but this this idea of what what could go wrong, the the fact that the reader's looking for something to go wrong, is is common to both the prose book and the graphic novel. Yeah, uh, and so you realize that he has accomplished just as well what what David Westlake accomplished with the prose. Uh, instead, he's done it through a medium of his choosing and his expression, um, and that to me is is how a successful adaptation works not in that you're doing the same things that the other book does no but you're making the reader feel the same things that the original material does mm. it's a very fine line isn't it because you i think the to me like this is such a it's such a, a great adaptation because it embraces the nature of the medium that it's in it's not trying to yeah. be a you know emulate yeah, yeah. it's no, there's no there's no emulation and that's the that's the difficulty that you find with with some adaptations is when like a movie for example doesn't know what to leave in and take out of a book and so yeah. you'll find that yeah. they rush through a longer book or they'll drag out shorter books in order to try and yeah. uh, you know that what you what they need to do is capture that feel capture that kind of emulate that that emotional um you know emotional bond that you had with the original uh, material um rather yeah. than trying to completely recreate it faithfully absolutely what did you think of this tiffany i i mean i love that i haven't read this specific one i'd read some of um darwin cook's other parker books which i enjoyed but there's something about this one that is so like and when I say like nothing's happening, I don't mean like nothing's happening because clearly a lot's happening within the telling of the story, but the story happens over such a small amount of time and like nobody changes, but it is so kind of gripping because it is, it's all about like the structure of the game that we're playing as readers and as Darwin Cook, the storyteller, when we're opening this book we know that this is noir and so we have a certain level of expectation and he's playing into that and kind of okay well mm. right he's leave, he's um giving us a lot of red herrings but he's also working up the tension we get a lot of um panels where one person is moving and everyone else is standing still and it kind of it gives us a warped mm -hmm. perception of time in the end and because because it is a heist we're so focused on time that it feels kind of like 
okay, get to it, get to when everything blows up and everyone's sad in the end. Um, it, it's such an interesting read. Mm, yeah. It is. I think I think it's his most accomplished, even in the in in the whole Parker series, simply because he's juggling so many different characters and plates here, um, and to make it all work, uh, and to make it all work in that sort of superstar graphic minimalist style that he has, um, is is very admirable. Mm. And I think you mentioned it at the when you first started talking about it, Ram, this idea of it being this, uh, it's not just a, a noir or a crime noir, it's a Hollywood crime noir, isn't it? You know, the, it, oh, yeah, it, absolutely. it feels like you're, you're watching a movie. It feels like you're experiencing this, you know, as as a movie. And you mentioned, you know, the idea of uh, it's not uh, especially widescreen, but it does it does feel like he's, he's evoking that kind of, uh, that Hollywood glamour, even, you know, despite the fact that it's like kind of a, a dirty dozen trying to get in and out as quick as they can you know yeah 100 percent. i think uh he, he's doing that he's accomplishing it by sacrificing the widescreen for uh, a lot of quick jump cuts if you notice um you know i know uh, tiffany mentioned the scenes where it's just one person and and the rest of the scene is still um he, he contrasts those with whole pages that are just the 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 stories moving from bang one scene in a panel bang another scene in a panel to where you have a ridiculous pace because you've just moved through a ton of story in one page and then the next page will just have you know uh four panels of a radio on a table uh, and only the text changes so he contrasts that and and that's what i meant by pacing uh, his pacing feels like a typical hollywood heist movie of that era mm. yeah it's brilliant yeah it's really good it's a really strong book i came to comics from prose and so it's very interesting to me to see someone take prose um what was essentially originally a prose story uh, and then turn that into a comic because i think that is invaluable for for writers who especially enjoy working across mediums mm. And I love that there's, um, you know, you're, you said you, there's lessons to be learned from this, from a storytelling perspective as a writer, to be able to to see how he, you know, adapts that work into into uh, into art. But also, yeah. not only that, but to to leave out, you know, so much of the actual prose and let his let his line work and let his actual art do the talking. Um, that's that's something that a lot of um, you know, a lot of writers, a lot of artists as, as teams can, can learn from this, can't they? Yeah, I mean, I always, I'm always peeved when people come and say, oh, comics should not be wordy. They should have less words or more words or they should be dense or they should be light. Um, I think comics should be whatever the story requires. And um, I think those kinds of discussions lack the nuance that you can see in Darwin's pages because... There are pages that are just chock full of text and then there are pages that are, you know, 18 panels with no words. Uh, and so it, it all comes down to making the right choice rather than sort of very rashly having these rules of thumb that say, oh, I, I don't write more than 100 words a page. Yeah, but what if you need to write 180 for one page? It's fine. <laughs> yeah. As yeah. long as you make that choice with with the knowledge of what you're doing rather than working by some rule of thumb. Yeah. Right. And kind of mm -hmm. on that with the kind of what is most appropriate for the story, there's something about the way that he, he uses his blacks um, in this story where I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, you're having an emotional conversation. You should be able to see someone's face. Um, but then towards the end, there's that conversation. Um, I think page 124, 125, where you can't see their facial expressions at all. It's almost completely mm. under the blacks. And he's, throughout the book, actually, the way that he uses color, it's not necessarily, here's my line art, and then I've colored the line art. It is, here are my three, mm. the three tones that I have, and how do I use these three tones to get the effect that I want for this specific moment? Well, he's really using lighting as a storytelling element, which any good film director would use, which any good illustrator would use, which portrait painters used, um, like lighting was so important to the kind of emotion that you wanted to convey, even in a single still portrait. Um, and so really Darwin's uses of, of, of blacks and, and shadows and, and so many light sources on this page 
uh, is all tailored to tell you a story, even through his use of lighting. Mm. And again, it was that was such a strong proponent of of Hollywood noir as well. Yeah, you know, this yeah, this exactly. this strong, stark lighting and and deep shadows. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Tiffany, you've brought uh, something with you as well. What um What book have you brought with you? Yes. Um. Kieran Gillen, Stephanie Hans, and Clayton Coles's journey into mystery six four five. So that's the last mm. story of that arc, um, the, the Kid Loki arc, if people remember that, which I really, really love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. super, yeah. super sad, which is just, you know, great. <laughs> um, and the funny thing is, is that I think I this was the first issue that I had read out of that run. Wow. Um, so I just started getting into comics and I was just, you know, picking things up out of like anywhere I could. I was like, oh, that looks good. I'll read it. Um, so I was reading a lot of things out of order. And like very clearly, this is an ending, and it is a sad ending, mm-hmm. and it's very clearly like the execution of a very long arc that they've put together. And mm-hmm. it's just after going back and reading the rest of the comic, um, I understood like how many moving pieces again um, are in this story. And I tend to call these kind of tragic endings Lucare endings. I don't know if you guys read Don Lucare. Um, love him, but they, he has these endings that are. They're always shocking, but then the moment you really think about it, it's like that's literally the only thing that could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's all about kind of, you know, happily misleading your reader and then breaking their hearts. Right, um, right. And there's something like with Kid Loki, he is a character who, a, a, a mainstream superhero character who gets an ending. Um, and it's not necessarily the kind of ending that we tend to think about when it comes to superhero characters, but like he is written out. And then he never comes back. And we still get a Kid Loki, but it's not the same Kid Loki. Um, and it's it's a really interesting play into what superhero comics can do and what you can do with seriality. Because um, Kid Loki, like, as a character, he could never just die and disappear. If he were to die, he would have to die in a way that someone else took his place. And the fact that it's like the soul of his former self um, is super poetic and awful. Um, so it's kind of like this sacrifice that for Kid Loki to have this righteous ending and not in the end get turned around and turned like I guess evil or trickster again, he had to die. Mm-hmm. This whole arc or Kieran Gillen's run on this is is wonderful, and I think it it plays into a lot of the the things we were talking about earlier of this idea of um, of playing within the confines of seriality, but also subverting those expectations as well um, by providing an ending for a character in in such a way that, you know, as you say, continues onward, uh, however, does provide that sense of closure to the story that was being told. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's even a panel that's um, where uh, a ma- the magpie brings a book and it's called Journey into Mystery, a comedy in 30 parts and a tragedy in 31 um which is you know which is wonderfully telling and wonderfully knowing like nod from from kieran gillen to who i'm you know i'm, I'm convinced is insane to have even attempted a story like this yeah and it's it's that perfect kind of ending where in seriality you have you it has to be an ending it has to be satisfying but when you put down this book you're immediately like well what's this new kid loki going to do um, it's an ending that's also a beginning. I was sat in a pub with Kieran at one point and someone came up to him and said, how come you never do happy endings, Kieran? <laughs> and his his response to that person was an immediate, bittersweet is the most I will do. <laughs> which which I think bittersweet best describes the, the kind of feeling that you're left with at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, Kid Loki turns around and declares that he has won no matter what happens next you know he has won this yeah. this conflict and there's that bittersweet because he you know the sacrifice he makes and what that then means moving forward for the character is um, yeah. you know is, is fascinating and also the fact that Kieran Gillen picked this character up in Young Avengers which you know yeah. was uh, was again was quite a seminal yeah. run for a seminal run, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it's wonderful, and it it also what I love about this choice that you made, Stephanie, is this uh, Tiffany, sorry, is this idea that um, the the superheroes as uh, as mythology and superheroes um, as this uh, the conglomeration of of hundreds of different versions of the same character. 
um, which Kieran Gillen touches on when you see Loki and you see these the different versions of the character. Um, and you actually wrote about this on uh, Women Write About Comics, which um, I read um, at the time and I reread uh, today to to kind of prepare for this. Um, and you you talk about um, Levi Strauss and the and the idea of of all these uh, of characters in mythology being an amalgamation of of diff- many different versions. Yeah, it's like my favorite thing to talk about when it comes to superhero comics, which is like <laughs> um, the character in the story that we were talking about earlier is constantly fighting against this bigger idea of the character, like when someone's reading a comic book, you want them to be rooting for this kid Loki, not thinking about Loki in the 70s. So in Journey into Mystery, and what Kieran Gillen does so well in his like meta work, is he literally has kid Loki earlier on in his arc fight against the idea of himself. Like he, that is what he has to defeat to exist. It's like, it it is, it's a fight for the right to be one's own person. Tell his new story. Yes. And um, Al Ewing, uh, picked up on that with Agent of Asgard, which was kind of the older young Loki. And he also had to fight against the version of him from the future and what it means to kind of be rooted into this. Everyone's expecting an idea of you, which is kind of what we all deal with. Like nobody knows anyone. We only know kind of these bits and pieces that we take in day to day of the people around us. And we're constantly fighting to be like understood as individuals. And this is my whole self. And that's what um, these superheroes have to deal with in each, in every issue. They're kind of redefining who they are in the moment. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you also mentioned in your article about this idea that all of these different versions of these characters exist in the same space at the same time, don't they? You know, especially in superhero fiction, the idea that nowadays you can read any comic you ever wanted to, you know, so you can go back to Batman and see the kind of character he was after Jason Todd died, but before he came back to life, (laughs) you know, and so, you know, you are contending with with those, you know, while the the, you are wrestling in your head with these different versions of the characters. What Gillen and, and Al Ewing have done is, is made that more literal and so make them actually, this this version of Loki is literally fighting for dominance in your, in your, in your brain, in your mind, in your, you know, in your vision of the character. Yeah, and he even does it in this issue. There's the bit where he, uh, where Kid Loki has a happy ending mm-hmm. and then we get the end and that it's, oh, actually, no, this isn't the end. Um, we kind of get this tiny micro version of, yeah. well, wouldn't it be nice if this was the true story? Um, but that story is in the comic. Like, it is also true in yeah. its own way because we see it. And it is a story. And, I mean, they're all stories. So what, what like, wins out over what? Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think what Kieran is very successful with doing in, in almost all of his books is he has these, he, I mean, he's very much steeped into comics and, and games and, and he has opinions on all of these things and he finds ways of putting his opinion there even even if that means you know he, he has a meta take on one of these characters but through it all he still maintains focus on their emotional journeys at no point do you feel like you're at a distance right. reading a story about stories you know what mm. i mean like in analysis, you can do that, but in that moment, you're still focused on the character and their journey, and uh, I think that's very, very hard to do. And, and I think Kieran is, uh, I think, one of those people that are um, uniquely successful in doing that. The emotional stakes are always very, very high. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think you could you could easily tip into the opposite, couldn't you? Where you you're no longer reading. Loki's story you're reading Kieran Gillen giving his you know philosophy on yeah, what it yeah, means exactly. for characters to to be that yeah exactly and he never le- he never lets you kind of slip into that uh, which I think is very very difficult to do um, when when you do have the, what are essentially philosophical or, or literary takes on on the medium and the genre and the characters that you're dealing with like uh, he did a he did a recent Peter Cannon um, run mm. uh, for Dynamite. That is entirely him, sort of leaning into his his. Um, I don't want to say commentary, but his his opinions and his his views on Watchmen and the comics that came after that and the comics that inspired that. Um, but at no point do you feel displaced from the story that you're rooted in, which is which is great. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's such a wonderfully bizarre series. Uh, you know, when you yeah, I loved the um, when they all lay down in the parking lot. Yeah, they lie down in a nine panel grid, and it just. I think that was the moment for me as well because all, everything before that was very much like, oh, you know, this this could be a take on Watchmen, but it's it's just his own story. But then like, you get to that moment, and it's like, oh, actually, yeah, this is this is definitely an, <laughs> he's coming in strong. This is about Watchmen, absolutely. Yeah, yes, no, that's wonderful. Says in that in that on that page, uh, we might lose someone or something along those lines, or we, we're going to lose people. And I was just, mm. it was, it's hilarious, and it's. It, it fits the story. It always fits the story, I think, is the important part of what he does, is like he can incredibly kind of cerebral with these things, but it's never to the detriment of the moment and it never, or the emotional moment. Sorry about the sirens again. <laughs> <laughs> it's always noisy in New York. Um, now, well, quick, yeah. quick, Tiffany, head to the, head to the panic. <laughs> yeah, quick. It's awful. Um, but also, I, I didn't want to finish talking about this comic before talking about the art, which is obviously mm. gorgeous. Stephanie Hans has this, like, it's always so dreamy. And it fits kind of this mythic, like, ghost world so well. And it's so haunting. Mm. Mm. There are so many layers to this issue specifically but this this um you know this this story that they're they're telling together um you know the idea of you can loki's such a perfect character to tell this this kind of story um but also loki and thor and asgard and and the the realms that he delves into and you know and hell and heaven and all this that they deal with is so such perfect um material for stephanie to to work in you know in her style is so so evocative and you know you it does really feel like it's it's fulfilling the title journey into mystery you know you if you pick up a comic with that title you want to be swept away in this kind of dreamlike magical realms and that's exactly what you get with her um her choice of colors as we pass through the different places and kind of like this journey that loki goes on he goes like he has different emotional beats that he hits and like when he's saying goodbye to his brother the colors are so different from when he's facing himself in the end and everything's kind of drained away. Like it's still the greens and the whites and the blacks and the reds, but they're used in ways. Yeah, I think, I mean, frankly, uh, I, I think Stephanie's choice uh, of, of colors and, and the artwork style, um, again, you can see in her collaboration with Karen on Die, um, is she, she definitely thinks about what kind of stories she's illustrating and um, wants to create atmosphere, if that's the right word, through through hmm. her choices with the art, um, and I think it's apparent in both books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, both books, uh, the subject matter is so it's so perfect for her style as well. Yeah. Um, so it it does yeah. it does go hand in hand with that. Um, and I, I love what I love about this story and what I love about the the ideas that Kieran's playing with is is something that you mentioned as well, Tiffany. The idea of all of these versions happen, you know, the the end, the happy ending that Kid Loki gets does happen as well, um, and it you know it's real, it's there, it's in your it's in your mind, you know, so it's it's as real as anything else, and it it kind of plays with that idea that you see you see on like a, a larger meta net level that you see superhero comics play with sometimes with the idea of like Elseworld tales or, or what ifs, but also uh, DC toy with the idea of um, the, what do they call it? Hyper time where it's just this, ev- everything exists at the same time. Um, none of it is, none of it is non-canonical. None of it is out of continuity because if you, if you have the, Right. the comic in your hand whether it's physical or digital if you can see these images on the page then they they really happened it's just that there are so many people that still feel like they get i feel like they get caught up in continuity and go well this did this actually happen to batman you know and it's like well yes yes and no you know yeah yes it did because you saw it you saw it happen. exactly it's the it's the constant fight when you're when you're reading a single issue of you have to take the past of the character that the creators are giving you in the moment like, I mean, if any one of these characters mm. lived through what, like, the comics have put them through, they would, well, first of all, be dead, but also, like, go insane. <laughs> like, it's too traumatic. Um, they, yeah. yeah, you have to cut it down. I would find that super entertaining when people come in and go, well, that's not possible. And I look at them, <laughs> like, really skeptical and go, this is a comic about a dude in a blue suit who flies yeah. around. What part of that made you think there was going to be plausible stuff in there? <laughs> 
but they always get super confused yeah. about like the sorry they always get super confused about the the most the more mundane things like they always go oh well i you know i just i don't i don't buy a, um a young black girl could could make us an iron man suit <laughs> oh, yeah. and it's like oh yeah of course no of course not everything else yeah. is fine everything else is completely yeah, believable fly, you know? yeah yeah because, because because Elon Musk's suit definitely looks like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it is in the end about flexibility and about the character expanding and contracting to the moment. Um, and I keep saying story, but I do actually mean the moment because the uh, and this is going to start to sound really like cerebral, but like the Loki throughout his arc also is changing. Like the Loki at the end of the story is different from the Loki at the beginning of the story, which should happen because that's how we get attached to characters. But like, it's always about this of version course. of this character mm. in this moment. And it's not necessarily about their really, really long history. It's about how this character got here. Yeah. 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 And, and that's all, also a defining part of this story as well, isn't it? It's, you know, Kid Loki declares that as it's well. Yeah. He, he yeah. says, I, I, I've won because I have changed. You know, I have gone through this and I've done this. And I have become a different person because of it. That's why you will lose talking to his older self because you will not and you cannot make that change yourself. So he's almost declaring his independence almost and he's, he's breaking the chain a little bit, even though he knows that the sacrifice he makes will then, you know, will, will maintain the status quo or at least pr like push it in a direction that he's, he's struggled to fight against. Right. And well, he can only win yeah. if he dies. Because if he lives, mm. like, he's going to, I mean, it's Marvel Comics, here's the bigger world, they will make him kind of the antagonist once more. The only way that he can continue in his, like, full-on change is if his story ends. And the other Loki, the living Loki, doesn't have that freedom. Like, most Lokis can't die. Most mm. Loki's always going to come back. It's just this one version who has the freedom to end his story. It's so sad mm. and great. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. As everyone's kind of humming along, going, hmm, I'm like, man, this is breaking my heart right now. <laughs> no, yeah. And I'm sat there thinking, yeah, Kieran Gillen really is a monster. <laughs> His entire life is just making us sad. Yeah, exactly. Like w wonderfully sad, though. Make make us sad in the best way possible. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, unless anyone has any final thoughts on uh, on that, I'll uh, I think we'll um, we'll leave it there. We've um. We've gone on uh, quite long enough. It's uh, it's quarter to one in the morning for for me and Ram, but um, <laughs> and it sounds like it's only getting um, more loud in uh, in your in the background as well. Oh, Some, something's yes. kicking off wherever you are. But um, thank you so much both for joining me. It's been um, it's been wonderful to chat to you about um, about the comics you love um, and about the um, the medium that we're all uh, we're all huge fans of. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been great. That's the issue is part of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter at That's The Issue, and I'm on there too at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at That's The Issue Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.